Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing? It's been a while. It's been a while and uh, we just did the math and this is my second to last battle with them and starting to feel real those three years on the podcast uh, they've really flown by and honestly you've been such a great partner in this adventure and you have been through another adventure over the weekend eh? because been hit by the storm yeah, we were lucky in that there was no damage done to our house or neighborhood. Uh, we did lose power for about two days, about 48 hours, enough to ruin the contents of my refrigerator. But Roland Paris has lent space in his freezer, so our, our frozen meat remains frozen. But I did visit uh, Stephanie Carbon last night as she was offering power and food and company, and her neighborhood was hit hard. And you could see all these big trees destroyed. And it's really sad because that's one of the selling points of the neighborhood. It's a really cool neighborhood with all these big trees. And those big trees really caught the wind. And um, of course, there's more serious damage done to some houses around there. And, uh, and there were a number of deaths in the region. So it's, it was a pretty serious event. But I'm happy to be back having power so we can do this from the comfort of my home as opposed to having to run into campus. And it was just kind of stressful. And now I've got to figure out when to get gas since there are long lines at the gas stations and when to get groceries since I have to replace everything. But minor, minor complaints compared to what other people are going through. Yeah, no doubt. And so I'm glad that we are getting to record this today and then we'll get back together mid or towards the end of June for our very last podcast together. Can you tell our audience what you're going to be doing instead of hanging out with me? Yes. I'm transitioning to the role of Associate Dean for Research within the Queen's Faculty of Arts and Science. So I'm doing this for the next three years. It's a big research portfolio because the Faculty of Arts and Science is quite big and diverse in terms of its various departments. So it includes chemistry, physics, but also political studies. So for a political scientist, it'll be wonderful to learn about these other fields that I might be less familiar with. But on the whole, it's keeping me within the research world. So to me, a natural step from uh, the last seven years being the, the director of the Center for uh, International and Defense Policy. And of course, I'll remain engaged with with research uh, through the CDSN. So on the military personnel uh, front, uh, Steve will be working very closely together, even if we're not recording a podcast every couple of weeks. Well, we really appreciate that because you've been foundational to the entire network and particularly to that research stream. And that research stream is going to be pretty busy now that there's a new set of recommendations that are going to be coming out any day now. What are you anticipating from uh, Louise Arbor's report that has been submitted to D&D and that should be public in the next couple of weeks? I don't think that we'll be too surprised by its content, Steve. I think over the last year, year and a half, there has been 
a lot of testimonies, studies, expert input into, into this process. And of course, you know, you were also part of these consultations with Albo. So you got a sense of, of where she was going with her, her question. I think what we can anticipate from this review is proposals for fairly broad sweeping and comprehensive change within the armed forces. And this is, you know, it seems to me at least where the Canadian Armed Forces is heading anyway, but we'll get more targeted recommendations in, in aspects of culture that maybe didn't have as much attention as they did up to date. You know, what I think is, is most important, perhaps even more than the actual content of, of the review, is, you know, getting that momentum to continue because... Over the last year, we've seen more diverse leadership within the Canadian Armed Forces. We've seen some leadership stability at the highest level to oversee this change, which has been you know, positive and good for, for the organization. Leaders have kept their foot on the gas when it comes to talking about culture change. And of course, that's important for organizational change, but it's not always clear whether the entire organization is seeing the change or, or not. So the Arbo review will, I think, provide renewed impetus and, and momentum for that culture change. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, doctrine, training approaches, professional military education, I think it will take time. So there's definitely some patience that is needed as this new culture begins to to emerge. You know, it's been a while now since we both talked to Arbor as part of, of this review. You know, where do you think that the review will lead the Canadian Armed Forces based on those interactions and how the conversations have evolved to date? Well, that's a really tough question. You know, I have a short memory. And the thing is, the questions were kind of all over the place when, when, when I met with her and a few other people. And I didn't get a really good grasp of what was really going to be the target for this. There's so much room to cover. I guess we should expect to see stuff on, obviously, promotion, recruitment. I don't know what she's going to recommend about how to, you know, to deal with those things, but those are the sort of outstanding things. Uh, I'm curious as to what she's going to do with RMC, since RMC has been a generator of this culture that has been so broken. Well, we've seen plenty of stories about bad things happening there. So we need to, it's not just a matter of finding the right apples and sorting out the bad apples before they join, but something about the machinery that causes apples to become rotten, if we want to keep the metaphor going. So what is it about RMC that has been causing whoever joins to the, to feel entitled have impunity that the sort of behavior and attitudes that we've seen you know are not stamped out but somehow rewarded or at least tolerated in a way that people feel as if they're empowered and entitled to engage in behavior that is problematic not just for how it affects the individuals who are their targets but for the entire calf i was at an event two weeks ago where peter mckay was trying to say hey you know we're you know all this talk about this is hurting recruitment and i'm like actually the reality of this is hurting recruitment and yes it's going to be hard and we might have to cut before we grow that one of the challenges i think and I'm, I'm curious of whether Arbor will address it, is how to change standards and how to get people out of the calf faster who are problematic, which might mean in the short term, the calf shrinks even further, but that might make it a better place, a more attractive place for future employees. I mean, this is all happening at a time where there's a really good job market. So it's going to be hard to stay out of the calf in, in any circumstances. Yeah. And a lot of competing priorities as well for, for the military with the war in Ukraine, drawing a lot of attention and NORAD modernization and then the, the defense policy review slash update. And this is where we will see the true utility of an organization like CPCC, Chief Professional Conduct and Culture, in terms of being a focal point for monitoring culture change, 
receiving the recommendations and crafting a plan for their implementation and being at least partially accountable for, for the progress made. But more broadly speaking, I think in the Arbo, there there's going to be a bunch of stuff we, we expect to see there, but I think we'll also get a tangible proposal on improving accountability and that, that famous oversight piece, and, and you've written an op-ed on that not too long ago, but to me, those are really important structural pieces that we'll see in the Arbo report. And then there's going to be maybe more predictable proposals made when it comes to changing the organizational structure, changing the culture across the system from training to education. Yeah, that's the challenge of trying to figure out what's going to be said, because again, there, there's so much that can be changed. And I think that the key thing is going to be, if you want to change culture, you got to figure out what causes the culture and what are the, where is culture generated? Where is it? Where is it fostered? You know, address those because culture is like water or air. It's it's all around us, but what shapes it, it, you know, comes from specific spots more than other places. So we can't attack everything. So, you know, like a good military, you got to figure out the specific place where you can concentrate your effort. The one thing I do worry about in all of this is that if everything is sort of given to the professional culture and conduct command to do, it might be seen as, oh, that's their job. It's not my job. And so how do you, how do you make it so that way it's focused so that way that, ent- that agency has a lead on it, but that it's seen as every captain's job, every corporal's job to make sure that the new culture, the revised culture is the one that, you know, develops as opposed to just keeping the old, old ways of behaving. I mean, that's a good point because we see all of the updates on this are, are provided by CPCC and also CMP, Chief of Military Personnel, and and we could see how they would have the the lead on a lot of this change. But it'd be great also to hear from the Air Force, Navy, Army commanders, CANSOFCOM, CJOC, in terms of how they are processing those Mm -hmm. organizational changes too. So, uh, you know, it's it's a good point that you raised there. Well, at least we'll have one last appearance by you on the podcast while you're still a co-host to address the Arbor Report. Uh, We will be coming back to you in the future, even though you'll be wearing that associate dean's hat to ask you questions and come on the podcast when issues arise or or when you have your own work to to come out because your your book is still coming out. And so I want you to have you on the podcast to to plug away. Speaking of implicitly NATO, let's, let's talk about Finland and Sweden. I was just in Europe at a conference in Berlin and and what was striking about that conference was I was assigned a paper to write in January about the future of NATO. And I'm glad I procrastinated because the things I would have said in January are different than the things I ultimately did say in April about the challenges facing it. And one of those things is enlargement, which is enlargement was off the table. And now it's not only on the table, but by the time this episode drops, maybe Finland and Sweden will already be members. The process is moving so fast, with the exception, of course, of the efforts by Turkey to slow things down. As you've been watching this as a NATO guru, what have been your thoughts on this whole rapid movement of Finland and Sweden? Mm. Well, everyone saw this coming, but last week, Finland and Sweden formally submitted their application letters to to NATO. And and you're right, the process is moving fast, but it's a process that will also not only require NATO consensus, but ratification uh, from the 30 member states. So yes, fast, but there's still a a process behind it. And that comment is a bit more unpredictable. In terms of the Nordic countries, I mean, when Finland initiated the move to join NATO, Sweden had to follow suit almost. You know, it's hard to think of Sweden as the only Nordic country out of NATO. And 
you have Denmark, Norway, and Iceland who are already members of NATO. So that kind of completes the picture as, as part of Nordic integration within NATO. And of course, there's already strong defense integration across those Nordic countries. So I think that the message that, that Sweden and Finnish diplomats are, are trying to convey in their charm offensive right now is that this is not such a big departure from the status quo. So they're trying to send this mm -hmm. message of reassurance. Don't worry, we've been PFP members since the mid 1990s. There's a high degree of interoperability already with NATO, but also across the Nordic countries. And also they want to, I suppose, be clear on expectations with regards to what that might mean for potential NATO or infrastructure personnel in the region. And they're really trying to convey the message that except for Sweden and Finland perhaps being a new logistics pathway to defend the Baltics in case of a Russian invasion, that not much is going to change. The other thing that we see highlighted in this term offensive is a highlight on their security contributions. So you've talked a lot about this, Steve, but you know, the extent to which certain allies are security contributors or consumers within an alliance mm -hmm. setting. Of course, the message that Sweden and Finland want to convey right now is that they are strong security contributors. And so for Sweden, it's really highlighting the strength of its defense industry, the fact that it has reintroduced conscription in 2018 in response to the increased perception of threat uh, with Russia. And for Finland, which shares a, a fairly long border with Russia, 1,300 kilometers, while Finland wants to emphasize that this border is well looked after and wants to speak to the longstanding Finnish defense preparedness on that front. So you can see how both Sweden and, and Finland are crafting their, their message, not mm -hmm. just NATO member states, but more broadly than that. And who they'll really have to convince is the Turkish president, ultimately. And this is happening this week. So you'll you'll see a Swedish and a Finnish delegation heading over to Turkey and trying to seal the deal so that there's at least consensus within the NATO context as per Finnish and Swedish accession. What are your thoughts about this? I know you've been following this closely and that you've updated one of your uh, semi-spew posts on uh, enlargement and accession. Yeah, I wrote a, a silly piece about what the form would look like if one was to apply for membership. But in terms of the dynamics we're facing right now, it was really interesting to see how quickly it moved. And you you do a good job of describing what the Swedes or Finns are trying to do, which is distinguish themselves from the last couple of rounds of, of enlargement, because these are countries that have advanced militaries and they have sound civilian control of the military. They meet all of the boxes on the forms of, of what it takes to become a member of NATO. They've both participated in relatively decent contingents. They, they had fairly large size contingents in Afghanistan, for instance. So this is not the first time that they'd be operating with NATO. They, they've been a partner with NATO for quite some time. So it's not going to be that much of a shock to the system. I do think it's interesting to watch the Turkey use this as, an, as a moment to extract stuff from NATO and from, from Finland and Sweden. So er Erdogan and the government of Turkey is, are looking for assurances, essentially, that they can go ahead and do what they want to do with Syria and to deal with the, the threat they see from the Kurds in Syria. And they want to make sure that Finland and Sweden don't provide aid or comfort or anything else to the Kurds. So I think it has a lot more to do with that kind of thing. And just Turkey to use any moment that arises as an opportunity to have leverage. And since NATO decisions require consensus, they have leverage over this. So I don't think Turkey will stop it. I just think that Turkey will get 
something for their support. But it, it's going to go through. One of the things I wrote for the conference last week in Berlin was the challenge that Sweden and Finland raised for other countries, which is where does the line stop? Where do Which countries can't become members? And then what happens to them? Because I don't want to blame NATO for the invasion of Ukraine, but that line between NATO and non-NATO matters, that Russia has not attacked any NATO members directly. There's been gray zone, hybrid, cyber attacks, but there has not been a single missile or artillery shell that's landed on NATO territory in the past two months. And so Finland and Sweden are looking for that assurance. And so we have to wonder and figure out how to help Moldova, Georgia, other potential targets of Russian aggression. And we can't offer them membership because that would stretch Article 5 too far. That could we, Would we really defend Moldova or Georgia from a Russian attack? But we can look to the Ukraine model and think about how we can encourage those countries to develop better civilian control of the military for them to promote based on merit, not based on who has ties to the government. That's a lesson we should learn from how we... Our training disappeared overnight in Iraq in 2014. And we need to think about arms sales. There's a lot of people who are now blaming NATO and Canada and the United States for not arming Ukraine to the teeth before February 24th. I think some of that is fair. I think some of that's unfair because we did actually engage in training for the past eight years and did provide them with some arms. But it all got more, more urgent once the attack happened. So maybe we can act a little more preemptively and preventively to give the countries nearby Russia more arms. Of course, that's going to increase their insecurity and antagonize them, which is what we feared. And that's what deterred us from doing more with Ukraine. But it turns out it doesn't matter how much you restrain yourself against Russia, they're going to do what they want anyway. So I think that's where I'm, I'm headed on on this. Do you have any ideas for what we should do with the countries that are not NATO members, not, not going to become NATO members anytime too soon? Yeah. And, and part of the reasons they're not is these frozen conflicts. So if Russia is imposing these types of status quo, you know, that's their assurance against further NATO enlargement to, to these countries and where it becomes a bit intractable. But I think your point is fair on training and capacity building. I think we need to look at the Ukraine model as having some purchase for future training and capacity building effort. I mean, this past year has I think held a lot of lessons when it comes to training and capacity building efforts from Afghanistan to, to Ukraine now. So I think for a country like Canada that prides itself on being a leader in terms of these types of mission where there's a strong advisory function in terms of working bilaterally with host countries and their ministries of, of national defense, and then the training and capacity building piece in order to have sustainable gains over time. You know, Ukraine is proving to be a model of success in a field where it's sometimes difficult to measure success or what sustainable outcomes look like in terms of uh, training efforts. So I do think we need to think a bit more deeply in this moment about some of these broader le lessons for capacity building and how ca Canada can contribute to regional stability through these instruments. The challenge is that Russia is not going away. And even if people hope that it goes away with, you know, a new leadership in Russia, I'm not too sure that a new leader in Russia wouldn't be behaving that differently from Putin. So I, I don't think we can rest and bet on regime change in Russia solving our problems. I think we have to do we have to think creatively about what has worked, what hasn't worked, and move on from there. Well, this is a good segue for our conversation with Ben Solomon. I talked to him a couple weeks ago about burden sharing, NATO burden sharing. He works part-time as a, a teacher at Carleton and he works full-time for Defense Research and Development Canada as an economist helping Canadian government figure out how to manage its defense stuff. So that's our conversation for today. Stephanie, it's always great to talk to you. It's been a while. I, w I wish you good luck in managing the transition to becoming the enemy. 
Oh, I mean administrator. Uh, there are entire Twitter accounts dedicated to associate deans. So I hope you can look upon those with great humor and remember what it was like to be just a, a regular professor as you move on with your next stage before you become the queen of queens. <laughs> well, I yes, you got to keep a good sense of humor through, through it all. And I do really enjoy these satirical accounts. Thank you for uh, introducing me to them. Yeah, as always, great to talk to you, Steve. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Today on Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Ben Solomon, who works at Defense Research Development Canada, as well as teaching classes at NIPSIA from time to time. Ben, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thanks, Steve. So uh, my name is uh, Binyam Solomon. Yes, I, I do work for the Defense Research and Development Canada, and I'm also an adjunct uh, research professor at Carleton, teaching uh, defense and uh, security economics courses. And, and I plan to teach actually two of them uh, starting in 2023. Previously, I've also done some stints at, as a special advisor for the Parliamentary Budget Office and I was also the chief economist for the department and uh, an acting chief scientist for uh, the operational research and analysis scientific stream. So that's basically who I am in a nutshell. Great. Well, we wanted to have you on the podcast because one of the focal points of your work has been on burden sharing. And there's so much misinformation about burden sharing in Canada that, that we thought you could help clarify things. When we think about burden sharing, the first thing that the media talks about is the 2% aspiration that Canada is supposed to reach in 2024. What's your take on that whole 2% thing? It's a good question. I mean, that, that whole 2% has always been a, a big discussion in the academic world and, uh, and also in the uh, political and favorite to topic for lobbyists as well. So I think there is a general consensus. I'm sure that the 2% is an input measure. It doesn't basically tell you a lot about um, a country's capabilities. And indeed, you know, a certain country might have, uh, any NATO member country might have a certain uh, marginal benefit or a, a marginal cost advantage over other countries in terms of producing specific capabilities. But assigning a 2% uh, measure may, may not necessarily give you a very good indication. However, what is missing in this discussion is the fact that the measure is about ability to pay and your willingness to pay. So your defense expenditure as a proportion of your income or GDP is a measure of basically an indication of your willingness. And it's not a bad way of, it's not a very bad way of explaining your willingness. And in some respects, it's also giving you an idea about the proportion that you're willing to allocate from your total income. And as a measure of that, it could give you some indication in comparison to your other uh, member country nations. So Yes, the 2% is um, an arbitrary number, but at the same time also the defense as a proportion of GDP is um, a valuable measure about your ability to pay. But the thing about ability to pay means that if you have a small GDP, then it's not that hard to get to 2%. And the question is, what do you spend your money on? So you're spending 2% of your GDP on defense, but that number by itself doesn't really tell you how capable you are. It's as you suggested, it's an input measure, but NATO countries vary quite widely on what they spend the money on. So is there a better measure that we could use that would be something that would still be simple to articulate to the public and to politicians? What has been done in the past is basically when you're doing an empirical analysis of uh, burden sharing, 
you try to basically uh, increase the measure of your security burden. Sometimes people have included things like your overseas uh, development assistance program that you might contribute to or a UN peacekeeping mission uh, contribution in trying to expand what is meant by uh, security burden. And I could discuss uh, a bit later on these ones, but interestingly enough, when you expand this measure, the analysis doesn't really change that drastically. There are times when there was a gross violation of the burden sharing, and there were times when burden sharings were more or less optimal or equal. So you could expand it that way. But if you notice, all these measures that I mentioned are still input measures. It's notoriously difficult to have an output measure. It's very difficult to measure defense outputs. I mean, I could talk to you about it at a tactical level, you know, number of sorties flown, number of targets destroyed. But when you aggregate it at the strategic level and say, what does a country actually produce in a given fiscal year? You know, what is the, the GDP equivalent of defense expenditure? That's still a, a difficult question to answer and hasn't been actually done in the academic world. We're still struggling to find a, an appropriate output measure. So what we have done is basically using these type of combination of input measures to basically assess and compare it to benefit measures. So you try to find a concordance between benefits and burdens. That's essentially how we we deal with it. Yeah, in my own work, I basically just argued about whether who shows up at all for the various missions and what, what contributions they make on the battlefield. So in Greece, who almost always excels in spending more than 2%, sends yeah. 20 people to Afghanistan for, you know, 10 years, I tend to think of that showing that the 2% measure is not that helpful for explaining actual contribution to the alliance. And so the thing is, this is not unique to NATO. It's not unique to this aspect because it's always easier to measure inputs than outputs or even better outcomes. That is, it's, you know, it's easy to say how much money we spend. And we might even be able to say, this is how many widgets we get, but then we actually don't end up having a good measure for what impact do those widgets make on whatever the goal we seek. Yeah. And notice also that the output or an outcome measure also is dependent on the perspective of who's basically looking at it. If you ask the the chief of the defense staff mm-hmm. or the, the the top military brass, what is a what is produced in a given fiscal year? They might point out different military capabilities, such as a typical one, tactical lift or strategic lift capabilities or a light infantry battalion, a radial right infantry battalion. But from a prime minister's office point of view or from the PCO's perspective, they may not really fully appreciate what a strategic lift is. What a strategic lift means for them is the fact that, uh, for example, Canada was able to go to uh, Haiti during the earthquake faster because they had the ability to project forces through the strategic lift capability, the C-17s. We were able to actually be there faster and provide more resources. So even from that perspective, you know, the same thing, strategic lift has completely different perspective from who is basically looking at it. Is it the PCO who's assessing this, or is this the uh, chief of the defense staff, or is it the public? And how much is it worth for the PCO that Canada actually was ready to go to uh, to uh, Haiti? Can you actually quantify that in a dollar terms? You know, these are the challenges. That's why we always go back to the input measure. Yeah, and the thing is, is that we have to think in terms of if this is about NATO, right? If it's about that particular enterprise, then how we measure contributions and burden sharing really should depend on what is NATO trying to do, not what any one military is trying to do. It shouldn't be in the perspective of the chief defense staff, but it should be in the perspective of, okay, NATO is doing this. Are we contributing to that? 
And so I know that the government of Canada has tried to focus attention on the actual deployments and the actual missions that Canada's participating in. I mean, if we take a look at Ukraine, and we'll get back to Ukraine later on, but one way to think about NATO's objectives is it's a defense organization. And in the Ukraine situation, NATO has been very, very successful. It has not been attacked, but that kind of non-event is hard to measure as a successful output. You know, that the forces that NATO has put together from all of the members has created a situation where Russia is not attacking NATO. But it's hard to then think about, okay, who's sharing the burden, what contributions has Canada made in that larger effort. So that becomes a harder thing to measure about whether we're adequately contributing to that. So do economists think about that at all? Yeah, no, that that is a very good point. The non-measure has always been a difficult thing in in international affairs. I mean, the same sort of things that we see in economic sanctions sometimes, the very fact that the threat of sanctions alone would deter people from actually engaging in any bad policy. But then, you know, you can't really measure it because there's no action that has happened. Interestingly enough, if you look at the theoretical models that started out since the inception of NATO, we've been actually seeing an interesting uh, theoretical predictions that have actually been verified empirically about each NATO member's contribution to the overall goal. And that is the amazing relationship that exists between the doctrine, the NATO doctrine, and burden sharing. So as early as the, the 1960s, when a couple of uh, international uh, affairs and economists, uh, Olsen and Zakhauser, when they initially thought that there was exploitation in the 1960s, the theoretical model that they have was basically indicating to you that the U.S. nuclear umbrella that was being provided during the mutual assured destruction that was basically providing a, a complete umbrella protection. And they predicted that this kind of uh, pure public good, that's the term that they used, which is non-excludable and non-rival in the sense that once the U.S. declared its nuclear umbrella during that doctrine, additional allies without, you know, you could protect additional allies without diminishing the protection available to the existing allies, or you could even add more uh, members into NATO without really losing any benefits. And furthermore, once this nuclear deterrence is provided, it's available to all allies. In such a costless scenario, the dominant ally, which is United States, is going to be exploited by the smaller allies. And this kind of prediction actually held strongly until at least the late 1960s. And once the doctrine shifted to flexible response away from nuclear strategic armament, conventional weapon systems, and more of the nations now have to have their own capabilities, the theory predicted that, and this is the so-called the joint product model, because there is some uh, jointness about some of the defense products that were being produced in the flexible response era. Again, the prediction was that uh, burden sharing would be ameliorated, and indeed, that's what we see. Empirically, we were able to verify that. So, so some of these theor- theoretical models, especially linking them to the doctrines, have basically shown us that you could use input measures and you could still uh, make uh, useful predictions. I guess the question then from the academic side of things is how, how well has that approach held up? Because one of the challenges of that theoretical model is that you know, it's built on the logic of, of what happens when you have a lot of folks contributing to to a good and it's not really that clear how to assess their contributions the joy of nato is whether we use the two percent and 
input on GDP or some other measure, it's a small enough group of countries, now 30, where you can track who is contributing and then either shame them into contributing more if they're under contributing or kick them out of the organization, uh, which is politically difficult, but it's not beyond the realm of the impossible. It isn't. But again, like you said, it, it, more recently, actually, what we're seeing is, especially now that Russian nationalism, you know, transnational terrorism and the likes are increasing. And the prediction is that we're back to be the exploitation scenario. And that's uh, more recent studies have basically highlighted this. And one of, one of the things that they have done is in addition to broadening the, the burden measure by including security measures such as um, expenditure to peacekeeping and defense, uh, overseas uh, development assistance, they also looked at what are the, the benefits to uh, burden concordance. So what are the benefits that each nation is getting from this security burden? And the measure that typically that we use is the combination of uh, what do you use defense for? It's essentially to protect your economy. So we use GDP. It's also to protect your economy and industrial uh, base. It's to protect your population. So we use a measure of population. And of course, it's to protect your exposed borders. So when we take an average of this and compare it to the, um, the security burden, and if there is a concordance between these two, then we could say, you know, burdens are shared uh, optimally. But if there is no concordance between these two measures, then we can basically indicate that there is a problem with burden sharing. And again, the empirical prediction has been quite consistent. During the flexible era that gets you to at least early 2000, the burden sharing was pretty much optimal. It, it started to deteriorate actually after around 2011. Once uh, you do the burden benefit concordance analysis, what you find out is that a lot of the burdens now are falling on the larger nations because they have the ability and capability capability to go after the pure public goods, such as going after the terrorist base, which is what was done in Afghanistan, for example, in those missions in uh, Libya and places like that. They have the military capabilities to go and actually destroy and produce uh, global public benefits. And the Russian nationalism and the uh, annexation of Crimea and all that is basically indicating to you that the reliance on the larger nations that have the capability to uh, deter these kind of aggressions are going to be facing more of the burdens. I guess one thing I, I want to ask is that has the burden sharing debate become more acute in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008? Very good point. Actually, you're, you're, you're quite right. And what has happened is I... I Let's be a bit honest that there are some allies that have never really, I think from according to one analyst, they use the term addiction to the peace dividend. I think there's always been this, after the financial crisis, a lot of the resources were redirected to fiscal and monetary policies to uh, sustain the economy. And that has basically been on the, on, the, uh, on the back of defense expenditures. So you're absolutely right that since the financial crisis, and that's essentially what the data shows, the burden sharing has been uh, worsened because of that. And that's why the, uh, the criticism have been uh, quite intense. On the other hand, our best friend for better burden sharing might be Vladimir Putin, where we saw countries start moving towards 2% <laughs> as of 2014 with Crimea. And then this winter, the invasion of Ukraine has led Germany to promise to get to 2% much faster than anybody would have expected. Do you find that kind of promise realistic? And I guess the second question is, is do we expect the Germans to actually spend on the right stuff and actually really improve their military? That is the, the ultimate question. I still, um, until I see actually actual efforts being made in, to spend the 2% level, I, uh, I need to see that proof before I actually predict that things are improving. 
Sure. I think they you always say the right things immediately after a crisis. I, I remember even the Canadian case in 2001, uh, the public opinion, there was a sudden a sudden jump, typical uh, public surveys where um, Canadians showed um, an interest and uh, agreement in seeing the defense expenditure increase after the 9-11 event. But, you know, shortly after that, we've seen uh, public opinion was back to uh, the usual uh, concerns about uh, health and education and uh, usual issues like that. So until I see actual uh, development that way, uh, uh, I'll reserve judgment, but you you are right that uh, Putin has been um, in, indirectly actually has uh, ended up helping some sort of NATO reemergence as uh, an important alliance that once again, and some countries are indeed a lot of the smaller countries actually that are bordering the Baltic areas have, have always been increasing their uh, defense expenditures and, and that behavior has increased considerably. So I, I could certainly see that happening to the extent that the kind of defense that they want to spend on, for example, if they decide to, to spend their resources on cyber defense and defense using conventional uh, weapons, actually this would bode well for the burden sharing because these kind of things are very specific for the country. The benefits are going to be accrued predominantly to the nation, so there will be more willingness to actually put resources in these kind of uh, capabilities. So, if the resources are put in, like I said, uh, cyber and related issues, then I, I can certainly see this helping uh, the NATO alliance. What's your take on the more recent dynamics where we've seen countries almost seem to compete to want to do more to help out Ukraine? It seems like there's the, there's not a burden sharing problem here, as much of NATO has been enthusiastic about. Have you been tracking the contributions to Ukraine? And, and does that fit into the, the sort of burden sharing framework? It does. But remember, what they're doing is that there is a lot of countries that are providing offensive weapon, weaponry and stuff. I could certainly see that as a, a useful contribution. But others are basically just uh, providing verbal support and uh, to the extent possible, uh, increasing sanctions. But then you have to look at where most of the financial transactions that's going to affect Russia is going to happen. If, for example, they ban uh, Russian oil, that certainly would have a huge impact. And I have to start to see how the European Union or the European member nations of NATO, are they going to be more willing to get to engage in this kind of activity or uh, is this going to start to bite them economically? Uh, that's uh, something I wanted to see before I make any judgment, but that's that's really the kind of real commitment to Ukraine that, that I would consider is worthwhile if they are willing to actually uh, penalize Russia by banning oil, the European theater. Yeah, well, there's a talk about that. They're promising to do that like six months from now. So we'll see if those promises come through. Yeah. Speaking of promises, what are you hoping to produce in your own research in the, in the next few months or, or years? What are, what are you focusing on these days? Well, I've been uh, focusing narrowly on the Canadian perspective, especially NORAD, the burden sharing in NORAD and what kind of expenditures that we should be putting towards the NORAD modernization. That's one economic activity that I'm quite interested in. The other one is I like to look at in a more dynamic way, Canada's contribution to defense and uh, uh, burden sharing over the years because a couple of studies uh, that have recently came out. I did one uh, in the early 2000s, but a couple of colleagues from University of uh, Manitoba and Naked, I guess, uh, they, they did a, a more recent study looking at Canada's burden sharing record since the end of the Cold War. And what they're finding is that gross free ridership in contrast to earlier studies that I have done where Canada's contribution was actually more in line with its allies. 
So this change, I think I don't want to look at it in a dynamic sense, because I believe that why Canada was doing very well in the past was that there was a certain amount of inertia. It was a huge amount of defense presence in the 50s and 60s. And then, of course, once again, when we recapitalized in the 80s. So uh, those probably have uh, made our burden sharing a bit more palatable than uh, after the Cold War or after the Cold War, I think we've been uh, basically uh, enjoying the peace dividend and recalibrating towards general government deficit problems, cleaning that up and doing so. So I think this kind of uh, dynamic analysis would probably give us more indication of what exactly was happening. So I'm looking into that as well. Yeah, I, well, that just raises one final question I've got for you, which is, I, I guess it's a a really interesting economic one, which is that there's sort of this contradiction between what we spend and what we do. And we, our leadership likes to talk about what we're doing. And so we have leadership of the mission in Latvia. We were training in Iraq and that became a, a NATO mission. And then, you know, before that, of course, there was our contribution in Afghanistan. And yet we're, we're underspending compared to the rest of the alliance. And so the question is, how sustainable is that? How can we keep, how much can we keep on having a fairly high pace of operations showing NATO that we're a valuable partner at the same time that we are spending less than most of our allies? Yeah, we, we need also to see uh, how much of our military personnel are actually going to be able to be engaged in uh, in any operation. You know, what proportion are we using? That That's usually been another, at least at the tactical level, maybe operational level, a good measure of outcome or output is you know you know what proportion can you actually deploy at any given time that's something also that we should be looking at how capable were we in afghanistan you know i think uh, our contribution in afghanistan were noteworthy by and it was also noted by everyone in nato but what proportion were we able to um, allocate at any given cycle and, and that's also an, uh, an interesting way of measuring military capabilities I want to thank you for helping us get a different perspective, a, a more economic perspective on the burden sharing or the challenges of talking about burden sharing and whether Canada is contributing what it's supposed to be doing and what are the consequences. We'll look forward to seeing more of your work. Thanks again for being on Battle Rhythm today, Ben. Thank you very much for inviting me. Cheers. Well, with the outage in Ottawa, I am behind in my consumption of pop culture. But before that, I flew to Europe, which provided me an opportunity to watch some movies on the way. And I also saw a movie before I left. And that movie is Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. I was never a huge fan of Doctor Strange in the comic books. The first movie was fine. I think Doctor Strange is better as a side character in either the Spider-Man movie or in uh, in the Avengers movies where he can play off of other people. But I did enjoy this movie. I think they did a good job with it. And there are a lot of surprises along the way. So it was more fun than I was expecting. And Sam Raimi, the director of it, is a favorite director of mine. He directed the Evil Dead movies. He directed the first two Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire. Actually, first three, but the third one we like to forget about. And he directed a lot of other fun stuff along the way. It's really uh, an enjoyable movie. So I recommend that. I watched Game Night, which is an older movie, while I was flying to Europe. It's a silly movie about friends who have game night at, at somebody's house every every week or every two weeks, or whatever it is, and things ensue. And it's just a, a silly romp and a great distraction. Uh, so I recommend that. And the third thing is a book. It's The Investigators by John Sanford. I've been a John Sanford fan for, for a long time. He has written thrillers and mysteries based on an art thief and then a series of books 
the Lucas Davenport books about a, an investigator, a cop who then becomes something else in Minnesota. And the investigators is about his daughter, who's just graduated from university and, is, and gets involved in, in investigating militias in Texas. And so they actually did drive to Lubbock, my old hometown. So that was fun to see. So The Investigators by John Sanford, Multiverse of Madness, and Game Night. And yes, I'm very, very much looking forward to uh, the next few weeks of just pop culture joy. Kenobi, Stranger Things, Top Gun, Part Deux, and much more coming out. So lots to distract us from the strangeness around us. Be well. Mm-hmm.